0: Good morning. It's really a pleasure to be with you and to have the opportunity to open the gospel this morning. We have been attending Incarnation uh, for a few months now, long enough to make a few friends. And uh, as at least a couple of those friends saw me this morning wearing this peculiar mic, they got the clue that maybe I was giving the sermon and uh, said maybe I should have stayed home. So it's nice to have friends and know that you're welcome. And then, of course, my friend Ed Cash, who's running the sound, said that if he ends up not liking it, he'll just turn me down. So <laughs> seriously, it, it really is uh, great to be here. And if you've been uh, with us in the month of December, you'll recall that Pastor Aubrey started us uh, in, back in December 3rd on a three-week series on spiritual formation. And so as I looked at the gospel text uh, to begin thinking about this message, I was struck by something right away. In verse 25 of Luke chapter 2, we're told that Simeon was a righteous and devout man. Not a bad descriptor for somebody who's spiritually well-formed. But the description doesn't stop there. We're told that Simeon was waiting for the consolation of Israel. Let's take a closer look at verse 25. First of all, Simeon's waiting was much closer to expecting, if you look at the Greek. Uh, waiting is something that I might do in the at the store at food line. The food line. I'm waiting there for the people in front of me to get through so I can get my food. That's the idea of waiting. But the beginning of chapter two, of course, starts with a very pregnant Mary. And we all know that that word we usually use is expecting. Expecting is what we have in mind when something is on the horizon that's going to really change everything for us. And so the English here doesn't really capture what Simeon is doing. Simeon is waiting with great expectation about what's going to happen. And he's expecting the consolation of Israel. This is... The idea of comfort. And as we learned a couple of weeks ago, the census was an act of domination from the Roman government. And so right in this chapter, we see the beginning of uh, an act of power, and a few verses later, Simeon waiting expectantly for his people to be delivered, to be consoled, to be comforted. And then, of course, we have Anna, the prophetess. Later in verse 38, and she declares to those who were uh, expecting the redemption of Israel. And the idea of redemption in the New Testament is the idea of being liberated. So these two phrases sort of bracket our two characters of Simeon and Anna. On the one hand, expectantly waiting for comfort and consolation. And expectantly waiting for redemption, for liberation. And of course, this isn't just for Israel, but as Simeon's song makes clear, it's for all people. We have in this text, Simeon take the Lord Jesus into his arms, wonderfully captured on the front of our worship guide, and he bursts out with joyous song. Sovereign Lord, as you have promised, you may now dismiss your servant in peace, for my eyes have seen your salvation which you have prepared in the sight of all nations, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of your people Israel. Simeon knew God's story in his very bones, as it were, and God's story shaped his longings and desires. I'd like to suggest that, like Simeon and Anna, spiritually well-formed people are those whose very lives are grounded in God's story of redemption and who therefore share deep loves and longings with God himself. The more our lives and aspirations align with God's story, the more we come to love what God loves and to long for what he longs for. Let me borrow an illustration to unpack this idea. A few years ago, I heard Leonard Dow, a longtime Mennonite pastor, speak about his undergraduate experience at EMU. He shared how he came to EMU principally to play basketball and that visions of athletic prowess fueled his imagination. They inspired what he would give his attention to and what he wouldn't give his attention to. But he went on to talk about a particular professor he had that inspired him to live into a better story. Leonard claimed... He was asked to speak on compassion, by the way. Leonard claimed that this professor, by inspiring him to live into a more gospel-centered story, uh, for him, gave the most compassionate act in his four years at Eastern Mennonite University. A compassionate act to inspire someone to live into a gospel-centered story. I've entitled my message this morning, Context Matters, The Significance of Culture and Community in Spiritual Formation. And here's a nod to Aubrey. I'm going to mention the Enlightenment. Living as we do on this side of the Enlightenment, it's natural for us to assume that spiritual formation is primarily about our own choices. It's up to us, we think. But just as Leonard Dow was formed and then reformed in different communities so are all of us shaped and reshaped in ways that are inextricably linked to our communities and to the surrounding culture. Certainly, Mary, Joseph, Simeon, and Anna had their own unique challenges with living faithfully in the first century. But I'd like to make the case this morning that in our own day, we have a challenge that's fundamentally new. Well, hang with me and see if you agree. In our hyper-connected world, Believers of various stripes routinely have their fundamental beliefs challenged. The overarching faith commitments and grand stories that have traditionally given shape to the lives of many now exist in a more or less contested space. It's harder than it used to be to hold our convictions with confidence. Growing up today, one feels conflicting pressures from an alarmingly young age to decide for oneself on the one hand, and then only moments later to feel pressures to leave your options perpetually open. And of course, it's hard to know where to go for help. Traditional authorities, parents, pastors, professors, they're cast in the same relativizing sort of uh, frame. Can they be trusted? And so where do we go? Google? I don't think that will work out too too well. Do you ever wonder how we got here? Well, I, uh, just another word about myself. I've had the pleasure of being engaged in Christian education for my whole career. About two-thirds of that has been in Christian higher ed and about a third of it in Christian secondary ed. And in my lifetime, I've seen enormous changes in technology. And at various points, moving back and forth between high school and college, I'd be out of an area for a while and come back. So a number of years ago, when I went back into higher ed, I was moving back into a residence hall after having been out of one for a long time. And at finals week, I went up on the floors and noticed that rather than studying, lots of people were playing video games. Video games seem to change everything in a residence hall. Or when I first went back, after I graduated from college and taught at the Christian high school from which I had graduated, I noticed that uh, students were playing these things called Game Boys. I know that's a long time ago. But they were fixated on their Game Boys. And uh, I have been intrigued by how changing technology changes communities, changes homes, churches, families. And so I bring that lens and set of concerns to much of what I think about. And in this vein, a few years ago, I was working with college student leaders at Eastern Mennonite University, and I asked them a question. It was a speed-dating question. This was a big kind of job interview. And uh, the speed-dating question, which they had a minute to respond to, was this. If, well, let me back up. The question was, which application or device tempts you to waste the most amount of time? And if it were suddenly gone, what would you do more of? I still remember vividly young one, one, young, one young woman looking at me and saying, Oh, Netflix. We're always streaming Netflix. And when we're not watching Netflix, we're talking about what we're watching on Netflix. Another student said, Snapchat. I'm always on Snapchat. What would I do if I didn't have Snapchat? Remember, this was a college freshman. I would read. I used to love to read before I came to college. I'm not making this up. That's what she said. Some time ago, one well-known cell phone provider decided to capitalize on the desire to stream video, so they began promoting a new feature called Binge On. Some of you might have this feature, whether you know it or not. And if you don't know it, I hope I didn't just inform you. (laughs) Users could stream video on their devices for free without pulling from otherwise limited data caps. The shameless encouragement to binge on in large banners in real life and on the Internet suggests how quickly our massive consumption of media has been normalized. As you can tell from all that's gone before, I think stories are powerful, We're made to inhabit them and to have them inhabit us. A central problem for us today is that our world is awash with stories. There's no end of them. Like many of you, we have a Netflix account at home. We could, if we let ourselves, stream in one day seasons of a given show which would have been drawn out over years in my childhood. My concern in a nutshell is that the biblical story becomes only one of countless options amid all the noise and flickering pixels on offer today. And while one can't reasonably expect the situation to be any different in the broader culture, what can or should we expect to be the case in our own homes or in our own church? My fear is that we underestimate the way that we're impacted when we dwell without adequate discernment in a media-saturated world. A relatively new environment of always-on-everywhere devices leaves us at sea with an almost limitless number of choices only a finger swipe away. Spiritual formation, simply put, is about becoming the kind of people who have the ability and the desire to respond as Jesus would in the wide range of circumstances that we might, in which we might find ourselves. If our immersive entertainment choices routinely invite us to imagine responses contrary to the goal of responding like Jesus, how can we hope to actually put on the character of Christ? Here's a thought experiment for us. Once upon a time, I was a physics major, and my professors were always enlisting us to think about thought experiments. So here's one. If Simeon were born today and he spent much of his youth and young adult years binging on free streaming content, what would be the likelihood that he would be formed into the sort of man who could trust God to make good on his promises? Even when, till nearly the last minute, there was plenty of evidence that it was really the Romans or the Republicans or the Democrats, if you will, who are in charge and at the helm. It's hard work to dwell in a character-shaping story that runs contrary to the dominant narratives of the day, and it's arguably never been more difficult. But the greatest threat for many of us might be that we don't know there's a threat here even worth resisting. But we should take heart, as I think there's good biblical wisdom to help us plot a way forward. Do you recall Philippians 4.8? Finally, brothers and sisters, Paul writes, whatever's true, whatever's noble, whatever's right, whatever's pure, whatever's lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, don't hesitate to stream it to your smart TV. Okay, so I took a little liberty there. Now, I don't want to give you the wrong impression. I'm a firm believer that Jesus, that following Jesus is primarily about what we say yes to, not what we say no to. But no's are, an, are important to say when they preserve a greater yes. For example, I say no to many things so that I can say yes to my wife and children. But if I lose sight of what I'm To say yes to, the no's seem to multiply and become harder to resist. This is what's great about Philippians 4.8. Paul doesn't even mention what to say no to. He simply reminds us of the innumerable good things in God's world that we can freely relish. But but then he says something more that's often overlooked. If you haven't turned there, you might turn to Philippians 4. In verse 9, he says, Whatever you have learned or received or heard from me, put into practice, and the God of peace will be with you. Paul won't allow the good and virtuous things to remain abstract following his lofty admonition about dwelling on praiseworthy things, he says, in effect, look at me. Do as I do. And the God of peace will be with you. And the God of peace will be with you. Did you catch that? Remember the first two lines of Simeon's song? Sovereign Lord, as you have promised, you may now dismiss your servant in peace. The fruit of living in God's story of loving what God loves and dwelling on those things that are praiseworthy turns out to be peace. We all need people like Paul and I suspect like Anna and Simeon were to show us what it actually looks like to be spiritually well-formed people and to live in the center of God's story. So let's review quickly kind of where we've been. Looking at Simeon, I'm suggesting that spiritually well-formed people dwell in God's redemptive story so that their longings and desires come to mirror those of God himself. Stories inevitably fuel some longings while softening or deadening others. A challenge for us, however, is that we live in a culture flooded with stories which create a Contested spaces that undermine the kind of confidence and trust in God that someone like Simeon clearly had. We have a harder time inhabiting the biblical narrative in part because it has a lot of competition. And some of it is rather hostile. Sometimes the hostility is obvious and sometimes it's rather subtle. As a partial remedy to these challenges, I suggest that many of us, and I include myself here, might benefit from well-discerned, a well-discerned media diet in 2018 and beyond. It is New Year's Eve, and maybe you're already thinking about diets, and as good as a diet might be for our bodies, perhaps one for our minds and our hearts is also worth considering as we think about the new year. While we can't change the contested space of the broader culture, we have much to say about what happens in our own homes. If we lament the ubiquity of fast food restaurants, we still can't really rid the world of them, but we can dine elsewhere. Finally, if you have children at home or other younger people somehow in your care, perhaps through work or in another context, then I'd suggest that you consider a new role that I'll call Embodied curator. Curator is, of course, a word related to our curate, which comes from a word meaning to cure or to care. A curator in our day is one charged with managing a collection in a library or perhaps one who decides what pieces are played in a music festival. The person is expected to utilize great discernment and caring for what's a part of a collection. What stays? What goes? What's worthy of a performance? Notice what envisioning such a role for ourselves actually does. Instead of being passive passive consumers of content dreamed up by someone somewhere for their own purposes or to be piped into our phones or onto our TVs, we we take on the role actively of discerning what is good, worthwhile, and praiseworthy. Philippians 4.8 wouldn't be a bad place to start as we begin to manage our collections, if you will. I'm using the word embodied with curator because that is what I see Paul endeavoring to do in in the Philippians passage when he says, look at me. In closing, let's consider briefly one of my favorite quotes from G.K. Chesterton. Chesterton said that the church is the only thing that frees a man from the degrading slavery of being a child of his age. In other words, one of God's gifts to us is that the church is an institution and as such carries practices, traditions, and truths across time which can help ground us in God's story in a way that we could never do on our own. If it were not for the church we'd have no real hope of knowing and dwelling deeply in God's story. Through the many ways we seek to touch one another's lives, particularly in our weekly intergenerational small groups, we might find a contemporary Simeon or Anna in our midst. Or we might, some of us, be that person for another family or another person. A faithful, older mentor who's been shaped over the years by God's story and who has the eyes to see God fulfilling his promises and the boldness to proclaim the same.